The Guardian. Mr Deputy Speaker, today we take decisive action to deal with the debts we inherited and confront the greatest economic risk facing our country. We have been tough, but we have also been fair. We have set the course for a balanced budget and falling national debt by the end of this Parliament. We have insisted that £4 of every five needed to reduce our deficit will be found from government spending. We have protected capital investment from additional cuts and got to grips with the soaring costs of welfare. We have provided the foundations for economic recovery in all parts of our nation and given our country some of the most competitive business taxes in the world. We have taken almost a million people out of income tax, half a million people out of national insurance, and we have done all this without increasing child poverty. Sadly, with this unavoidable budget, we have had to increase taxes. We've had to pay the bills of past irresponsibility. We have had to relearn the virtue of financial prudence. But in doing so, we've ensured that the burden is fairly shared. Today, today we have paid the debts of a failed past and laid the foundations for a more prosperous future. The rich is paying the most and the vulnerable protected. That is our approach. Prosperity for all. That is our goal. And I commend this budget to the House. It was billed as the most brutal budget for a generation. Today, George Osborne called it both unavoidable and progressive. I'm Adit Chakraborty, and in this podcast, we'll put those claims to the test with experts from The Guardian and The Observer. We'll also hear from MPs, union officials and members of the public. To begin, we've got in the studio The Observer's business editor, Ruth Sunderland, and Guardian columnists, Julian Glover and Seamus Milne. Ruth, the prime motivation this budget was to reassure markets that the government could bring the deficit down uh, at a suitable timescale. What do you think they'll make of this budget? Well, I, I think the you know if the aim was to reassure the markets about toughness, then uh, you couldn't accuse George Osborne of shirking on that. Um, and you know he's he's done this. It, it's a very it's brave in that sense because he's done this in the face of an unprecedented letter being sent to himself and to um, other G20 leaders and finance ministers by President Obama warning of the grave risks of pursuing this sort of strategy. I think the question that George Osborne really needs to answer is, you know, was it unavoidable, really? And also, how is he really going to ensure that alongside the austerity that he hasn't trampled all over the nascent recovery and our prospects of of future growth, particularly in the regions of this country, which, frankly, many of which have not yet recovered from earlier economic periods of difficulty. So, you know, I do think George Osborne still has an awful lot of questions to answer. Okay, that's the macroeconomic. Seamus, let's go to you. Uh, Nick Clegg wrote to all his fellow Lib Dems last night that this budget had fairness at its heart. Was that accurate? Well, it doesn't seem to me that it is at all, really. I mean, it's there's a, a quite a significant redistribution from some of the poorest in society to the largest sections of business through the cuts in corporation tax combined with um, squeeze on, on benefits for the poorest. I mean, there are some window dressing elements, you know, which can be presented as as something more progressive or fair than than the Thatcher cuts of the 80s. But overall, I think it's a pretty 
savage pack- package. And interesting, I mean, the point you were raising with Ruth about the markets, I mean, obviously, initially, the markets are going to respond well to it because it's playing to their stated agenda, uh, to the bond markets anyway. But if as already the government itself is predicting that this leads to lower growth. And if that turns into um, something more like a double-dip recession, as many economists are now predicting, they're not going to like that at all because that's actually going to push the deficit up. So I think the, the, the window is still open on that, uh, on that question of how the market's going to respond in the medium term. Julian, let's talk about the man who delivered the budget. Uh, it said at the Treasury that chances get two budgets to prove themselves. George Osborne is only 39, the youngest person to hold his position since the 19th century. How well do you think he did on his big day? Well, he delivered a clear message and he spoke well enough and he got through and he read the right pages in the right places. I think what's fascinating is that all government is an experiment in ideological planning against human reality. And so we've had 13 years of a government that had a very clear agenda of trying to take money, operate through the state, slowly and then quite rapidly towards the end, increase public spending and deliver a different kind of Britain. Now, in some ways, people could say that succeeded. In other ways, they could say it failed. Um, And it was also the unfortunate victim of banking crisis, uh, which left things in a terrible mess. We now have a very, very clear different experiment taking place. And it's a five-year experiment. And it began today with a big explosion, which will produce a lot of unhappiness, unhappiness that the government knows is going to come and unhappiness that's that's genuine on the Labour side Um, Harriet Harman didn't need to fake her rage at this budget as in the past some people have at government budgets there's a lot here that people will really dislike and feel is wrong and absolutely want to protest about and they have every right to do so we won't know though whether it's worked or not for about five years and that's what's fascinating and daring about this it's clearly based on a different view of government from the Labour Party and for for many people on the left it, it just will seem completely insane It's clearly also based on a different view of economics from many people who write about economics. Um, Well, again, we'll see. I would say, and I think the Conservative Party would say, that Labour too was an experiment which didn't deliver everything, that we can't just say there is one assured route for success and then we've gone off on a mad different route. We have two routes where we don't know whether they would produce the things we hope for society. And Labour, if it had been in power now, would have had to do some of these cuts. It wouldn't have done as many. It would have done quite a few of them. It would have had to do some of the tax rises. It would have had to do different tax rises. And clearly it would have been a different budget. It's, it would be unfair to say this is just a bit like the Labour one. It's very different. But that too would have been an experiment at elements of the markets. We would have had to know how they would react. Elements of, of, of recovery too. So in every way, I think we're entering five years of extreme uncertainty, which may be very polarising. Where that leaves the Lib Dems in the middle, it'll be interesting to see because they're going to be drawn to both sides of that argument. But I think it's fascinating. I think we'll know where we stand. I think we're all going to shout a lot over the next few years. I mean, in terms of the recovery, we're going to know the answer much more quickly than five years. I mean, if if this goes wrong, and it's not just we're not just talking about Britain, we're talking about the whole of Europe um, generally, which is going down similar road. Um, we'll know within the next year or so whether or not it's helped to trigger deeper of course, it, recession. We will or experience it. Of course, what we won't know is whether it's produced singularly by this budget or whether it would have been the consequence of a European-wide drive into recession. And but of course, politically, and the, of course, the damage will be felt by the government, yes. if, even if those other things, which of course they will do. And that's the daring to. of it. And of course, the upside might be felt too, And because I wouldn't rule out the possibility of things not going as badly wrong as the Labour Party clearly thinks they will. Um, if that happens, there will be reward for this. There is going to be extreme identification with the measures the government has taken. People hate it or they like it. Um, it's going to shape everything. I mean, this is the definitive moment for the next few years in British politics. Seamus, the big argument going into the election was cut now, cut later, cut sharply or cut slightly less lightly and hope that growth makes up the balance. Uh, we know where the Conservatives did on that and we saw some evidence of that today. 
where do you think Labour are going to go? I mean, that they, they well, weren't it's got that the, different I, from Tory well, as Julian's th- pointing out. I mean, there was a big argument within the Labour government about whether to go down the road they did. And Alistair Darling wanted to go for this half the deficit over a, a five-year period. And, and the... The coalition has gone a great deal further, you know, to cut, effectively end up balancing the budget in, in five years. Um, and in a way, that's got Labour off the hook of its own cuts agenda. Because and of course, could... they found a note sitting on the desk, which uh, was mentioned <laughs> in the speech today, pointing out helpfully that there was no more money. So this is this is really a response to the Labour chief secretary. But then, but then there's the other dimension, which is the Lib Dems themselves. Of course, they they were arguing very strongly before the election and during the election campaign against cutting this year, and that's one of the big compromises they had to make. And of course or they've made and then they also um, were going for a very different balance between tax and spending cuts tax increases and spending cuts and they lost that argument as well um, and so although they've clearly made some had some impact on the shape of this budget uh, I think on the big econ- macroeconomic questions they've lost completely and uh, and so if it goes pear-shaped they're going to pay very heavily indeed. One, one of the short terms is just going to be do people think well it had to happen it's very nasty but at least I know where I stand or are they th- going to think, good God, I never realised this was what I voted for? Let's hear a bit more about one of those tax rises, because one of the biggest announcements today was on VAT. On the 4th of January next year, the main rate of VAT will rise from 17.5% to 20%. Yes. The years of debt and spending make this unavoidable. John Dennis has been finding out how people on the streets of London are reacting to a hike in prices across the board. Good God! I reckon there's going to be a lot of small businesses that aren't overly impressed with that amount. After all the changes that we went through last year and all the costs that were associated with that, I find that really incredible. Not unexpected, and it's just going to get more and more difficult for businesses and individuals in the coming months and years. I think it was inevitable. Um, I'm glad they've delayed it till January, so at least if we want to buy something, we can get on with it. I think I think it had to happen. And uh, you know, that isn't on food, it isn't on children's clothes, it is on quite a few luxury goods that we can do without. VAT's gone up to 20%. What do you think? Not good at all. It doesn't help little people like me, put it like that. Um, but Osborne wants to reduce the debt. Don't you think that should be a priority? Yeah, to a certain degree, but we've all got to keep living and working and paying our mortgages, you know? You know, if the state of living goes up that much and we can't afford our mortgages, it's all hell break loose, really. I think they, they had no choice but to do it, uh, to raise the extra revenue for the national debt that's currently suffering from. So I'm only in favour of it. Could he not have uh, raised the revenue in another way, a different way, that doesn't hit the poorest as hard? Well, you can't be all things to all people, even though you try to be. But I think the VAT rise was a, was a given anyway. Pretty uh, dismayed, to be honest with you, on personal perspective. I think it's a little bit too much in one hit. Bearing in mind it was only 15%, it's just got raised back to 17 and a half, and then come January it's going to be 20%, because it will be quite a, a hefty hike, you know, the, the extra 2.5%. John Dennis there, taking the retail temperature. Seamus, VAT is quite a regressive tax. It's not the most regressive tax I can think of, but it's certainly not as progressive as income tax, eh? Yeah, a long way from it. I mean... There are exemptions, of course, for food and children's clothes and mostly newspapers. But um, uh, if, if because it, it takes up a, because the things that people are spending on take up a bigger share of their income for poorer people than um, than richer people. It it is regressive, and the fact that they've loaded so much of the tax increases onto VAT, I think, is part of the counter argument to the claim that it's a fair or progressive budget. 
Ruth, um, we often talk about budgets in terms of winners and losers, rich and poor. But in this one, there seems to be quite a sharp gender element as well. I mean, women are the ones who typically end up paying out VAT more at the counter. Women typically work more in the public sector. Well, well, you're right. And I mean, one of the interesting things about the slump overall is that there was initially an expectation based on sort of previous some previous well the early 90s recession that women might suffer more now that hasn't really happened so far um, in terms of job losses but we probably will begin to see quite a big gender impact now as women um, start to lose their jobs in in the public sector as you say typically women do in a lot of cases have responsibility for household budgets so you'll see that there though to be fair that's family incomes it's not female incomes but also you know some of the things the 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 pregnancy grants and the expectation that single mothers will go out to work when their youngest child gets to school age I mean these sort of things will have a direct effect on women I was quite interested I I don't think I heard him say anything about the tax break on marriage Um, I mean perhaps that um, remains one an of aspiration. You would would uh, correct me, but I don't think I picked that up. Which, of course, was again very, very contentious in terms of um, you know approving a certain family model and, and other women who maybe through no fault of their own weren't. In well, that. One of the reasons, of course, um, that this, is, this is true of what you say that you know, women will suffer disproportionately mm. from benefit cuts. It's, it's of course because most benefits are targeted at women and yeah. single mothers. Um, so if you're a single man who doesn't have a job. Yeah. You don't get a lot of benefit. It's pretty yeah. hard to cut from oh, 60, I mean, 70 quid a week. So, so it is true. Don't get me wrong. But it is I'm, partly the structure of, of the benefit system as yeah. created by the Labour Party over the last 13 years that has, has made this the consequence Don't get of any me wrong. Changes. I am just as concerned about the guys who've lost their jobs in chorus and the men who are going to lose their jobs as well. You know, I'm not in any way saying this is, this is um, all, about, all about the girls. Well, let's hear about some more of the boys now. Let's hear about the bankers in the city, because Osborne made sure that the institutions at the heart of the financial crisis took some share of the medicine. From January 2011, we will introduce a bank levy. It will apply to the balance sheets of UK banks and building societies and to the UK operations of banks from abroad. There will be deductions for Tier 1 capital and insured retail deposits and a lower rate for longer maturity funding. Smaller banks with liabilities below a certain level will not be liable for the levy. Once fully in place, we expect the levy to generate over £2 billion of annual revenues. Ruth, how's this bank levy going to work in practice? Well, we don't really know, I don't think. I mean, he he has said that it's going to be um, a balance sheet tax on banks, and he said that it it will raise about £2 billion, which is more more than we expected. I think that's probably the influence of the Lib Dems there. So we're not sure exactly what the mechanics of this will be. No doubt the banking industry will protest vociferously on the basis that Osborne has, albeit with with French and German support, that he hasn't waited for full international backing and will hear the usual round of complaints about how this will damage the UK and damage London as a financial centre. I thought a very interesting thing was actually... a, a. a one-line reference he made to um, the fact that he's also looking actively at a financial transactions tax and looking at how that might impact on banking pay and bonuses. And that was a theme, again, he just flicked at in his Mansion House speech. So I think we can expect to see further action on this. And I have to say, you know, um, I think on, on in this sort of area, th- this is one one kind of area that I would actually give a bit of credit to George Osborne for because I think he he has and and the banking commission that he set up as well to look at a separation of the bank's casino activities from 
their humdrum utility activities, you know, that's going further than Alistair Darling did. So, um, you know, I think he's he's doing, you know, making some of the, the steps in the right direction. OK, but Seamus, we know two things as a result today. We know that this bank tax will hit small building societies as well as very large multinational banks because it's aimed at all bank all, all institutions of the bank sector. We also know that he's not going to continue taxing bonuses. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with Ruth about... Um, Alistair Darling having been very weak in his dealings with the private banks, but I don't agree with her that that this is um, more exacting on the banks than we'd expected. In fact, I was just listening to a city analyst uh, whooping with delight at how low um, the hit on the banking sector was, and they'd been expecting something much, much higher. And I, I think it really is tokenism and the least he could get away with in the, in the circumstances. And, you know, w- when you're setting that against what we, we're looking at, you know, 25% real cuts in unprotected departmental budgets, I mean, this is really small potatoes indeed. I mean, it's a, and of course, it's £2 billion is less than, um, a, a good deal less than the bonuses that are being shelled out uh, right now, uh, here and now, you know, so... Julian, one of the tasks that David Cameron had, had and George Osborne had to do in this budget was show that they weren't just Margaret Thatcher in converse, that they actually were, were better than the same old Tories. Do you think people will take that message away as a result of today? Well, certainly, if they listen to the budget, hear the words. It doesn't mean the substance is there, but it was striking in the language. They did want it to be seen as different. And, and, and when you want to be seen as different, that is a small start on the way to trying to be different. Um, there were clearly elements of the welfare changes that put money back in as well as took it out. We wouldn't have had those from Nigel Lawson. Um, I, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's underpinning really that this is, this is in some way a liberal budget. It's trying not to be an old-fashioned Tory budget that divides the country into rich and poor and says, well, we're on the side of the rich and the other party on the other side of the house is on the side of the poor and you lot lost and we lot won, so... You know, his five years for the rich. It did try and be a budget that had a different view of government, but sort of somewhere in that stuck to the idea of a sort of liberal social justice, a sense that we were, as tiresomely he keeps saying, we're all in this together. Um, He meant that. Now, of course, we can argue about the consequences and, and the IFS will go through the figures and we'll see over time whether it produces that. One of the natural consequences in many societies is that the rich are getting richer faster than the poor. So, Wealth gaps have widened. Arguably, they widened at times under Labour. We haven't produced the one nation nirvana that everybody would like. But I think the intention is genuine. Ruth, let's stick with the one nation theme. How's this budget going to affect the rest of the country outside London South East? Well, I think it's going to be very difficult. And, and I think it, the risk is that it is it, it could be quite divisive. I was... I mean, on the positive side, I was pleased to see that, you know, as Julian was saying, that they do want to be seen as different from, you know, the the Thatcher government, and and which, as we all know, you you had areas of the northeast that were just became wastelands. Um, so I think, you know, it's good that at least they're, they're expressing that. Now that has got to translate into action. I mean, there were a couple of good things, you know, they committed to keeping regional infrastructure projects going like the Tyne and Weir Metro upgrade. They they were talking about a regional fund and they're talking about a white paper, weren't they, about how to rebalance the economy. But you know, I think taken as a whole, and, and there was, of course, this national insurance measure as well. But I think taken as a whole, the impact on the regions like where I grew up in the northeast will inevitably be very, very harsh. You know, in, in Middlesbrough, for instance, you've got 
huge swathes of the population either on dependent on benefit or dependent on the public sector. You know, in, in, in the Teesside area, virtually no net new private sector jobs have been created over the past decade. And when you look at the private sector to fill that gap, unfortunately, a lot of private sector employers and a lot of private sector firms are dependent on the public sector for their own business. You know, so th- th- this is very... I think this is a really difficult problem. And that's the fascinating thing that comes to the heart of lots of this government. The feeling that parts of Britain are too dependent on the state is essential to what the Conservative Lib Dem coalition wants to change. It does feel that 13 years of Labour rule didn't produce mm. growing public sec- uh, private sector employment in the North East. It didn't produce a, a, a short-term period of help where people could be mm. looked after and then would gradually move away. It just produced endless dependency. And parts of Britain, you know, Northern Ireland is the most explicit example, yeah. partly because of its politics, are utterly dependent. Mm. There is no prospect of private sector growth in, mm. in, in the way. Now, the Tory argument would be that the ex- mere existence of a well-funded public sector in a way discourages private sector mm. growth. Of but course, the Labour argument would be yeah. the opposite, that you need the public money to produce the growth. But there is a debate about this. I don't think simply cutting money from the state in the north of England will necessarily um, destroy everything. It can produce growth no, too. No, but equally private sector growth won't appear by magic. And, you know, for instance, that I'm glad to see that they are looking at this and that they're taking some measures. You know, the national insurance um, holiday for for new firms taking on up to five staff. I mean, that's a good gesture. But if you've just lost your job at Chorus, if you go into business by yourself, you're likely to be a sole trader. Employing five people is quite a lot of people. You know, even having generating enough profit to employ one person is quite a stretch for a new business, particularly in an area that's very depressed. Now, I agree with you. I don't think it's desirable to have this situation. And I'd love to see private sector enterprise really flourishing in the northeast and other places like that. But I don't think it's going to happen just by pulling off the support because there's what is there then to build on? So this isn't a party political criticism. I'm just saying that what what is really concerning me is that all the austerity you want is not going to help this country if you haven't got genuine growth. I think Ruth's, Ruth's right that, that, that you know private sector um, growth doesn't happen by itself and of course the Labour government adopted a similar policy they tried to, they expected these things to happen more or less spontaneously and only just towards the end of their time in power did they start to think seriously about industrial strategy and what's interesting today is that the Tory Lib Dem coalition is backing away from even those measures by their talk about a new growth model, but in fact they're pulling away capital investment allowances that might push things in a different direction or, or start to, especially in the manufacturing sector. So, I mean, I, I really don't think there's anything, any reason to believe that there will be spontaneous industrial development in places like the northeast, northwest, or, or large other parts of the country that have been devastated in the past 30 years. Well, as MPs begin chattering among themselves about the implications of today's announcements, Mike White in Westminster has been hearing what they have to say. We've just had George Osborne speaking for an hour. Harriet Harman's on her feet. I've come out of the chamber to try and find MPs sneaking out for an early lunch, see if I can find with a snap judgment uh, on what they've just heard from the Chancellor. I'm Eleanor Lang. I'm the Member of Parliament for Epping Forest. I'm a Conservative Member of Parliament. She's wearing a lovely blue (laughs) outfit as if we didn't know. (laughs) I thought it was an excellent budget. I was really pleased with what George did. I thought that he delivered it with confidence and he was sure of what needed to be done. It is unfortunate that VAT has had to go up, for example. That is unfortunate, but that is the realistic situation that we're in. 
Uh, I've got another uh, Tory MP uh, uh, heading my way here. I'm nervous about pronouncing your name, Daniel. I'm not going to do it. Introduce Kavczynski. me. Yes. Kavczynski. He is by far the tallest man ever elected to Parliament at, I believe, six foot eight. In the Guinness Book of Records, I believe. Yes, he's in the Guinness Book. Now, what did you think of the budget? <laughs> I like the idea that they are deliberately trying to look at encouraging business growth outside of London and the South East. Very, very important that our country is more, is more equilibrium. Yep, so that was particularly absolutely. good. What made you think, oh dear, my constituents won't like that? Well, obviously, uh, the VAT being a, you know, rising so much, it was... was a bit of a shock. I didn't realise it would be as, as much as that, but no. but, but clearly that that's a you know he needs to he needs to take that measure uh, given the extent of the debt. Now this is this Norman Baker who's a sort of investigative member of Parliament, and he's a troublemaker. But since the coalition, he's unfortunately been made a member of the government, so he can't be anymore. Can we ask? What were the particular Lib Dem bits? I thought there were several, including the abolition of that extra cider tax, not popular with your West Country <laughs> colleagues. What other things did you tick box and say, yeah, we did that? You, you noticed that, did you, the cider one? Uh, well, obviously, the, the move towards exempting people at the lower end from income tax is, was a key Lib Dem policy in this general This is up election. towards the 10,000. Yes. First down payment this year of 1,000, raising the, the tax threshold. Exactly. And the general move to make sure that the pain was shared more by people at the top proportionally than people at the bottom. That would never have happened under a pure Conservative government. It's happened under a coalition. So you're feeling happy with the coalition today? I think the coalition's delivered in terms of what actually George Osborne said, which is fairness with the need to tackle the budget deficit. John Denham, uh, former Labour Cabinet Minister just out of the chamber, what did you think? I think it was a budget clearly designed to deliver what most of the Conservatives would have wanted to do irrespective of the wider economic circumstances. Uh, they have set out to dramatically reduce the role of the state in a way that I think goes way beyond anything that's justified by the real economic circumstances. So it's an ideological conservative budget that we're up against here and the country is going to pay a high price. Natasha Engel, what did you think of that? Um, I think we were, all of us, waiting for him to mention the letters VAT, um, but I think everyone was really, really shocked at the level of, of that. 20%, that's a massive, massive hike. Why so shocked? You explain that to people. Well, I think that, it, you know, it was, a, it was a key election issue for all of us and, uh, you know... Because you a, said well, they'd put it up and they said they had no plans. Absolutely, absolutely. And, but to put it up by that much and then to say that that this, uh, this was a budget that would, uh, you know, not harm poorer people. Right, I've got uh, Steve McCabe here and Gordon Marsden, both Labour MPs. How did Harriet Harman do making the one speech was so hard for leaders of the opposition, they don't have time to prepare, they've got to think on their feet, it's very technical? I think she got it more or less straight on. Uh, I, I mean, she, she, she made the point that uh, the previous predictions, and indeed the predictions today from the Office of Budget, still show that Alistair Darling was on track with his plans and the plans that we had. She made it very clear that this is going to be something that's going to, uh, the VAT rise of Dick is going to attack uh, some of the poorest people in society. And she threw in some good snappy quotes about places like Merseyside, being the worst off and Cheshire being the best off. Okay, Blackpool's Gordon Marsden there. Steve McCabe, you represent a Birmingham seat. I thought she was absolutely right on VAT, which they vehemently denied during the election, but they've put up at the earliest available opportunity. And I think she just has exposed the Lib Dems for the weakness that uh, they represent in the coalition.
Right there we've had a, a very unscientific uh, cross-sample of MPs from the main parties. Uh, what do I think of the budget? Well, it, in many ways it was more subtle and more nuanced than I might have expected if you uh, exclude that big thumping with the VAT. Uh, like everybody else in this building, what I'm going to do now is go away and study the small print because in every budget there is always stuff which you didn't understand as the Chancellor rattled through. This one rattled through almost as fast as Gordon Brown used to do, but he did go out of the way to say I'm not sneaking things through as you know who used to do and uh, I'm going to go away and find out whether he did. Uh, back to Aditya in the studio. Thanks Mike. Now quick out of the blocks with reaction this afternoon with the Taxpayers Alliance and Chief Executive Matthew Elliott had this to say. The bits I agreed with were the spending cuts um, and the cuts in corporation tax and things like that. But I'm really, really disappointed about the increase in VAT, particularly because it hits the poorest twice as hard as it hits the richest people in society. So it is extremely regressive. So, yes, the poorest people will get a little bit more through an increased personal allowance. But perhaps the chance will reconsider when it comes to the pre-budget report uh, in October. And from the other end of the political spectrum, Mark Sawatka of the Public and Commercial Service Union also told us that the budget would hit the poorest in society. Well, what I focus on most is that it's the poorest and most vulnerable and people in the public sector who pay the biggest price for a crisis that they did not cause. And if you look at some of the headline figures, they are startling. The, the Chancellor has just announced an £11 billion worth of savings in the welfare bill. And when you look at the small print, he's targeted housing benefit, making it harder to claim disability living allowance, freezing child benefit for three years, all things that are going to hit people who are most desperate for an income in this difficult time. But if you then look, he further uh, announces uh, a £13 billion worth uh, of extra VAT. And again, if you consider VAT, who does VAT hit the hardest? It hits pensioners, it hits people on benefits, it hits the lowest paid. And it's an extraordinary way, I think, to target those least able to afford to make a contribution in the way that the budget is done. But what it also does, it makes it clear that public sector workers are in their sights as well. We've got a two-year pay freeze for anyone over £21,000. We've got in the civil service announcements of up to 25% cuts in government departments, which means hard-pressed public sector jobs will go. And most worrying on top of that, we've got the pensions review, which we'll report in September, which is very unsettling for our members because quite clearly the government is targeting public sector pensions to make it more savings. And that means for our members either increased contributions or reductions in their benefits. And that's completely unacceptable. Mark Sawatka there of the Public and Commercial Services Union. Before we go, final thoughts. Julian, how do you think this budget will be written up tomorrow and how do you think it will be remembered in a year's time? I think the unavoidable budget line will be used. Um, some people say that's true, some won't. In a year's time, it will be seen as the moment to revive the Labour Party in the short term. It might be seen as the moment that changed Britain for the better and produced economic growth in the long term. Seamus, your lot are back on form then. My lord, <laughs> um, I, I do think that, it, I mean, that that's right. That the that the Labour Party will find it easier now to sort of get itself in in order to be a real opposition. Um, but I think it will be re- seen as the moment that the real strategy of this government was started to be set out. And I think we're going to know pretty soon whether that's going to be effective economically. And I, I think the, there's a very high risk that it won't be. Ruth. I am not sure that I think we can all imagine what tomorrow's headlines will be. I think George Osborne is absolutely right about one thing, that this budget can't be judged on, you know, on the short term 
um, headlines. This is not a budget for a short-term verdict. I'm, I'm at the moment reading a very interesting book about um, how central bankers and politicians tried to reconstruct the world economy after the First World War. And the striking thing about that... Is that the of finance? Is that a lot of a lot of the things that were hailed as triumphs um, and or as disasters turned out to be absolutely the opposite? So you know, I, I, I think I think he's definitely right that you cannot judge this on on a knee jerk um, instantaneous reaction at all. I'll tell you one thing: this must be the only podcast where a book on how central bankers tried to reconstruct the world economy after the First World War gets described as fascinating. <laughs> And all the better for it. Thanks, my I'm sorry to be so sad. <laughs> well, I knew what it was. I'm just as sad as you. I'm just as geeky. And that book, in case anyone's interested, is Lords of Finance by Learcat Ahmed. My thanks to my guests, Ruth Sunderland, Seamus Milne and Julian Glover, Mike White and John Dennis. The producers were Phil Maynard, Tim Maybe, and Andy Duckworth. My name's Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.